I tell you what, it sounds good to have kids in the house. Love that sound. Today we will be talking about a life pleasing to God. We will be looking at a study of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. If you were in class this morning, the world's longest introduction to the sermon occurred, and so uh, we set that up. Uh, so we will get into the lesson. As we look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first three chapters of this book are mushy. This is like a love letter. Paul is, is telling them that they have knocked it out of the park as far as Christians go. You know, uh, it's, it's just amazing all the superlatives that he puts on them. But, you see, Paul left there before he was finished. But even though he had not finished everything he wanted to do, they have done very well. They have exceeded his expectations in many areas. They have heard the message of God and brought it to life. In other words, they hear the word of God and they are acting on it and they are taking the gospel message to all of the world. They have become imitators of Paul. And when, when I say that, I don't mean that they became Paulites instead of uh, Jesus followers. You see, the word has been preached throughout the region because of them. Paul took the message everywhere that he could, and now the people of Thessalonia are doing the same thing. They have given up their relationships with idol-worshiping cults and began worship, worshiping the true and living God. Just like Paul had given up Judaism to take on Christianity. And also what we see in here is they have an expectation of rapture in the end times. So, They had recognized Paul for who he really was. <clears throat> he was God's messenger. He was God's hard-working laborer. He was God's holy man. He was holy, righteous, and blameless. You see, Paul wants to spend more time with them, but he can't. It says in the text that Satan has hindered him from coming to see them. So because that he can't get there himself, he sends Timothy to check on them. And so that gets us to chapter 4. See, Paul has spent some time affirming them in his previous chapters. And now it is time to bring up the areas where they can go from good to great. See, that's what's important is, is recognizing that we all are uh, fallible, that we all have faults, and uh, the Thessalonians were also in that category. You see, every church has items that need to be improved. But the fact of the matter is, no one wants to hear about their infirmities, or their places of weaknesses, or their mistakes. No one, no one wants to hear someone being critical of themselves. But see, Paul loves them. 
and love demands that truth be told. Paul would not be a great apostle if he just wanted to be their besties. If he just wanted to be their best friends, uh, he would never tell them that they were doing anything wrong in the eyes of God. He would let them wander down the path to hell. But see, instead of being their besties, Paul now exhorts them to be the best that they can be. So let's look at the text in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For we know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verses 1 and 2 here form a gentle and general reminder of the instruction they have received from Paul. They have heard the word of God from Paul. They have acted on it. And now Paul and his associates uh, are making sure that they continue to live and please God. The word live here, uh, literally walk, is an emphasis on actions, that they have actions that are in keeping with the gospel of Christ. The word please God emphasizes motives, that what causes them to do their actions is their love of God, not love of man, not love of idols, not love of anything of this world, but that they are to please God. You see, with proper motives, we will do proper actions. We will do it God's way if we are motivated by godly things. What we know and what we see is that Paul and his fellow workers had laid a doctrinal foundation and then taught the moral and ethical obligations of the faith. And this is in keeping with how Paul would actually practice as he was going throughout the various places to teach the word. He would first teach doctrine, that is God's word, and then he would teach duty, that is the life application. Another way to say it is he would teach precept, that is principles from the Bible, and then practice how it is demonstrated by someone living out their faith. You see, doctrine must lead to godly practice. We cannot worship God's word. We have to live out God's word. You see, it's not about a momentary ethereal feeling each Sunday that causes us to be Christian. It's our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that he went into the watery grave of baptism, and now we have been saved. And now we live out that life that he gave us. In 4, 3 through 8, it says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, 
This regards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Folks, this, this actually, uh, Paul went from hugging them and loving on them to smacking them upside the head. He, he now is talking to them so that they can learn the practices that will best suit the church moving forward. In 1 through 8, what we have is our walk before God. He says uh, here, each person needs to know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Paul is saying that the believer must maintain self-control over the desires of the flesh. See, we have to know how to control our own bodies. We must understand our weaknesses and the evil tendencies and then resist and flee from these things play to our weaknesses and our evil desires. The, the, the vessel that Paul is speaking of is knowing how to possess our unredeemed human flesh. As a new creation in Christ, there is only uh, the only place where sin and I'm sorry, let me read that again. As a new creation in Christ, this is the only place where sin and immorality can attack us. That is in our our human flesh that will be there available for Satan to attack. What Paul is saying is we can't approach life like the world does. Paul is saying that we are to abstain from sexual immorality by not behaving as those who do not know God. What he says is those that do not know God are controlled by their sinful desires, by their flesh, by their weaknesses, by, by the things that they want to do. They have not been transformed yet by God's work of salvation. But yet we, Christians, have been transformed and should no longer pursue the lustful passions of the unsaved person. Passion means uncontrolled desires, overpowering urges that control us, and lustful refers to out-of-control craving, usually for something that is unrighteous and sinful. This is how those who do not know God live their lives. They are controlled by sin and characterized by their uncontrolled desires and cravings for sinful pleasures. As Paul is speaking to them, he's letting them know that their number one sin here is sexual immorality. But I believe that what Paul is also saying here is that the flesh of Christians can be weak. It, it may not be sexual immorality that, that may be your sin that he's talking about here. It could, be, it could be any sin that pulls you away from God, that displays before other Christians and other people of the world that you are not a follower of God. Paul wrote this in the letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. He said, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. 
And then what Paul says is, therefore, glorify God in your body. Flee immorality. That's strong. Flee. As if you're being pursued. He's saying don't uh, don't indulge. Don't ponder. Don't let the desires of the flesh whisper to you. He could as easily have said, escape, run away, take off. Or in the words of my people, you need to bolt. What he's saying here is to protect the temple of God. After all, remember the temple of God is not your own. God gave it to you. It was paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. So he tells us to glorify God in our own bodies. Galatians 5.16 says this, But say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We have to offer up our bodies as living sacrifice to God so that the Holy Spirit can renew our minds so that we are not controlled by our desires and appetites. Paul has made it clear that in order for a Christian to control his body, he has to rely on the Holy Spirit. We have to let the Holy Spirit come in and work on us. In verse 6 and following, Paul gets real with them. Paul tells them to abstain from sexual immorality by not uh, taking advantage of other believers. I tell you, this is where it gets personal in this letter, because at first he says sexual immorality, and then he's saying don't commit sexual immorality in the house of God. We're not talking about in the church building. We're talking in the the called-out brotherhood, in the gathering of the saints, of the people. Just because you're getting intimate with people, don't cross the line. Paul says that we are not to transgress uh, or defraud our brothers in this matter of sexual immorality. Strong words to a congregation that he was just flattering only moments before. Transgress means to sin against or take advantage of. Defraud means to selfishly and greedily take something for personal gain or pleasure at someone else's expense. When a person seeks to satisfy their physical desires and gain sexual pleasure at the expense of another believer, they have violated this command that Paul has just laid down. We can expect the world to tempt believers and gain sexual pleasure at the expense of another believer, but the fact is we should not cause our fellow brother or sister, to stumble. Early Christians must take heed of their own holiness and never use other believers to achieve sinful gratification. Not only, you know, uh, you know, I said new Christians here, but you know what the fact is, is that all Christians should not defraud or cause to sin other members of the body of Christ. Paul goes on and tells us why we need to abstain from sexual immorality and seek to be holy. First, he says, because the Lord is the avenger in all things. He's telling us God hates this. 
and God will, will actually make you pay for that. See, all sin is against God, and he alone has the right to hand out, hand our vengeance for the sins people commit. Also here, the Lord judges and disciplines those he loves. And if we give into our lust, we feel God's discipline in our lives. God is going to reward you for what you do. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12, 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What the Hebrew writer was telling us is that discipline never feels good. In fact, it hurts to be confronted, and especially when you realize you have caused other people pain. But see, discipline hurts on both sides. The discipliner is disappointed because of the violation. The wrongdoer should feel remorse for the transgression and the harm caused. And the wrongdoer should realize that Jesus suffered because of the sins we committed. What God is striving at and what Jesus is telling us is that discipline puts the wrongdoer back on the right road. And he's trying to correct the path at the Thessalonian church. But Paul also gives them another reason to abstain from sexual immorality, and it had to do with the purpose of God. He wrote that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Sanctification is a church word that means holiness, that means purity, that means without sin. By using this word, Paul was showing the Thessalonians that when God called them to salvation, he also called them to a life of holiness. God wants us to do the best we can in the body that we have in a world full of sin. See, God's purpose in saving us is to produce a holy people who would walk worthy of his call into his kingdom and glory. God wants us to walk into the gates of heaven. He wants us to do the best we can with what we have here. <clears throat> Paul's final reason that we should abstain from sexual immorality was that by disobeying this command would not mean that they were rejecting something that man had said, but that they would be rejecting God who gives the Spirit. So when you are sinning this way, what he is saying, that the rejection here isn't of any men or women, but the rejection that you are doing is God. Sin means that you have rejected God. It means that you are disobedient. And what we're also told uh, is that obedience is a sign of our love for God. Disobedience shows the rejection. So the standard of sexual morality is God's. He gave the Holy Spirit to believers to enable them to keep the standard. See, he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we might live pure and holy lives. God's Spirit indwells us at the moment of salvation because he is holy. It should be unthinkable to enter into sexual sin and thereby reject the Lord who gave the Spirit and defile our bodies, which is the Spirit's temple. 
Paul is, I believe, making sure that he states this so that they understand what they have been doing. In verses 9 and 10, we are looking at our walk before each other. And as we see this, it says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul switches gears again. He has, he has three chapters of, of love. He has half a chapter of strong message. And now, as he is completing this, this uh, fourth chapter, what he goes and says is, you know what? You're still doing a pretty good job. He tells the Thessalonian believers that they are to conduct themselves before each other in love by loving one another but what he's telling them, in essence, is you can have brotherly love. Just don't have erotic love. Intimacy uh, has to stop at, at sexuality. Closeness can't draw you into sexuality. Your, your closeness needs to draw you into relationship with God. He tells them that they do not need to be instructed in this because they are doing what God wanted them to do. You see, because they had been transformed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he was producing this love for their brothers and their sisters in them. They had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They had been baptized. They had made a decision to work in the kingdom, and they were yoked together with their fellow believers by the love of God. And Paul says they don't just do it at their church, but they practice this love toward all the churches in Macedonia. All those in the region know them for the love that they have for each other. You see, Paul had planted several churches in Macedonia, in Philippi, and in Berea. And the Thessalonian Christians had shown their love and concern for these other brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Peter 1.22 helps us to see what Paul is talking about as he encourages them to excel at loving one another. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently one another from the heart. Paul wants the Thessalonians to excel still more in their love for each other to fervently love one another from the heart. He urges them to love more, not less. He's not telling them uh, at the risk of having sexual immorality to quit being close to their brothers. He's telling them to be careful. He's telling them that the love between brothers and sisters as they are working in the kingdom has to happen, but there are limits. In verses 11 and 12, what we see is our walk before the world. I believe that this is a formula for passive evangelism. I believe that 
Ramona and I talked about this a little bit uh, prior to the sermon today. It says this in 11 and 12, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He instructs these Thessalonian Christians on how their walk is to be before the world. He's telling them, and I believe us, how to conduct ourselves before the world as we walk in holiness. He's going to tell them to be motivated about these three things in regard to their conduct before the world, especially toward those who are unbelievers. First, Paul first says to make their ambition to lead a quiet life. The idea here is to lead a quiet life that is a life that is quiet and tranquil as they wait for the return of the Lord. They're not to have hostility toward others or be the cause of conflicts, but their lives should be a witness to the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of peace. The, the gospel should cause peace to break out, especially among Christians. Paul says they should be focused on their own lives. Paul is telling the Thessalonians to do this. First of all, concentrate on their own lives. Put on blinders. Don't watch what other people are doing and don't talk about it. He also tells them to care for their own families. In other words, focus on bringing and nurturing and taking care of your own families. Don't let, uh, you know, you don't have to tell other people what they're doing wrong in raising their kids. You don't have to, uh, you know, make other people examples and stories that you have. What he's saying is, is don't get involved in the, the affairs of others. Paul urges them to attend to their own business and not meddle in the affairs of others. You see, if we launch out and we start to meddle, peace does not break out. Chaos breaks out. Infighting breaks out. All these things detract from the message of Jesus. Lastly, he tells them to work with the talents that they have received from God. He is saying that each of you has a specific gift. Each of you, I have, I have made you talented in a particular way, and considering whatever way that is, go and prosper. Paul is telling them to work and support themselves with the talents that God has given them. see, Paul urges them to stay focused on the goal of bringing others to salvation. Listen to what he says. If they do these things with determination, they, the outsiders, those in the world, the unbelievers, would see their behavior. If you do these things, then the ones that we want to target, uh, the demographic that we want to, to see what God has for them, They'll see what we have to offer. You see, the outsiders from the face would see diligent, hard workers living in peace and tranquility with respect for the privacy of others. And this is a powerful testimony to unbelievers. 
and makes the gospel more credible. You see, people can see the transformation that takes place in new Christians' lives. So what does it all mean? You know, we have, we have looked at what Paul is saying to the Thessalonian church. You see, Paul has started off and affirmed the good behaviors of the Thessalonian church. They have exceeded his expectations in many areas. They heard the message of God, and they have brought it to life, and they have become imitators of Paul. Paul is applauding them on this front that they have done a good job. And if, you know, what Paul is saying is these are, are things that we can model after. These are things that we can see and do. But then Paul confronts the behaviors that need improvement. He says they must quit practicing sexual immorality. But then he even takes it a step further. He says quit hurting brothers and sisters by committing sexual immorality within the household of God. What he says is, turn that around. You have to start practicing holiness. Then, as we close out this section, Paul gives them a formula that will draw people to the church. I don't know about you, but I would like to draw people to Christ's church. I don't want to draw them to Buddy's church or to, to anybody else's church, but Christ's church. And Paul is showing us uh, four simple things that we can do that will draw people to the church. He says, first of all, what you have to do is concentrate on your own life. Wow. We have to be focused on, on what we have. We are to take care of our own families. That's step two. In other words, make sure you're taking care of your household's business. He then says not to get involved in the affairs of others. Don't be involved in gossip or blame or shaming others. But lastly, what he says is work and support yourself with the talents that God has given you. You see, we are each a unique child of God. We are each given uh, a set of skills to use in this world to help others in this world for the cause of Christ. What Paul is doing is telling us that we need to take care of our business so that we are attractive to the world so that people will want to follow after Jesus. Today, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you are living outside with the world. I don't know if you have uh, made a commitment to the world or to uh, some other group, a religion, some other faith, but what we call you to do is commit to the faith of Jesus Christ. Commit to understand that Jesus Christ left heaven, came to this world. He lived in this world for 33 years, and then he died on a cross as a sacrifice for our salvation. He went down into the grave, and then three days later, he was resurrected. 
He, he came into newness of life, and then some 500 witnesses over 40 days recognize him. What Paul is calling you to do, what we are asking you to do today, is to change. Acts 2.38 tells us to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent is our church word for change. Change what you're doing and start doing it God's way. Possibly you're here today, and you have put on Christ in baptism. And at some other point, you repented, but somewhere along the way, things got blurry. Things got muddled. Things got to where you were unfocused on Christ. What Paul would tell you, what our elders will tell you, what I will tell you is that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that because of that, you're welcome here. We want to hear you and about your story. So today, if by chance you want to respond to the message of Jesus, please come as we stand and as we sing.